This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, co-hosted by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku. My name is Adela Brianso and I'm the publishing assistant at NIAS Press. Today is the end of May, May 25th, 2020, so we are recording this in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Today I have the pleasure of uh, being joined by Dr. Mega Amris. Welcome, Mega. Hi, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Mega Amris is a researcher and a NIAS Press author, and her research focuses on migrant labor, care, aging, inequalities, belonging, and citizenship, and many other interesting things related to, to those and connecting those that I've just mentioned. She currently leads the uh, research group Aging in a Time of Mobility at the Max Planck Institute, and this team examines the interconnections between aging, migration, and translocal mobility in Asia, Africa, and South America. We're obviously mostly interested in Asia, but I'm sure that Mega can uh, bring up loads of interesting connections between those uh, different areas of the world. Uh, and just to mention that uh, Dr. Mega Amrith has a PhD in social anthropology at the University of Cambridge, and that her thesis was actually the basis for the book Caring for Strangers, Filipino Medical Workers in Asia, which has been published by Nias Press in 2017. Uh, but let's get straight into the topic of today, which is sort of just talking about this COVID-19 pandemic and, and related it to the very interesting research that, uh, that you do, Mega, at the Max Planck Institute and, and before in your, in your career. Um, tell us, what has this pandemic been like for caring professionals and, and nurses? Right. I, I mean, I think this is a very timely thing to be talking about in this moment. And as we've all been witnessing, uh, you know, reading and watching the news from around the world, we can really see that this pandemic has, of course, taken a very heavy toll on caring professionals and nurses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they are the ones at the forefront of providing care. So they're experiencing both these slow working, but also the dramatic impacts of the virus on human lives. And uh, they're essentially doing their jobs, but oftentimes they're doing so under conditions of great physical and emotional strain with a lot of anxiety and fear. And that's because in some countries, they're not safe doing these jobs in this present moment. So they're working without, you know, personal protective equipment uh, that they need to keep them safe, but also to keep their families safe and, and those they're caring for. And I would add here that uh, this has devastating consequences, especially for migrant nurses in mm -hmm. European and North American contexts, as we're reading about it a lot. Uh, as a result of the structural forms of discrimination that are putting some groups of nurses at more risk than others. And I, you know, I remember seeing a picture during one of these protests of nurses outside a hospital And the placard was saying, like, nobody wants to go to work to die. And that's really, uh, that was really a striking statement for the people who are caring for others in the midst of this pandemic. That's extremely powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also emotionally, you know, they're affected also by their patients who, who are alone. So they are the ones who might have to open the iPad for family members um, who are saying goodbye. Um, but at the same time, I think we have to bear in mind that it's not happening the same way in all countries. So uh, thinking about the Asian context specifically, I think a lot of nurses remember SARS 
from 2002, yeah. 2003. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when a lot of nurses were also deeply affected. And so I think the memory in some ways makes them fearful. Right. Uh, when they think about it, they remember, you know, the stigma when they had to ride public transport to go to the hospitals, uh, which we're also seeing now with, with COVID-19. Yeah. But yeah, I hope also that has meant more lessons were learned. Uh, I was going to ask this, if there's also an element of preparedness into yeah, this memory I think of so. SARS. I think because of, because of the lessons from SARS, I think the, you know, we're seeing health workers, of course, affected all across the world. But I think in the Asian context, those working in hospitals that have been through SARS are more prepared. So there is more protective equipment. There is sort of training on infection control. Right. Um, so there's a lot of things that, um, you know, we, we should learn from the past. And I think a lot of these countries that have been through SARS and to some extent H1N1 mm-hmm. um, have been more prepared for COVID-19. Right. Also, a side note on that sense, I've I've been reading that some African countries that have suffered the Ebola epidemic yes, are absolutely. also better prepared in that sense. Um, yes. Interestingly, so yeah. Yeah, and interestingly, that's not always um, you know been highlighted in the news as exactly. practices. Yeah, definitely, I agree. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you've you've sort of briefly mentioned uh, migrant nurses working sort of Asian nurses working in Europe or North America. I think that COVID-19 is clearly laying bare a lot of a lot of truth about our world and, our, and the current world order. And I think lots of people are coming up with alternatives to this sort of failing system that's currently in place. But what, what can we learn about immigration regimes and, and about care around the world from this? Yeah, I think there's so many things to say about this mm-hmm. um, to begin. <laughs> But I think most of what we're seeing now is actually revealing a lot of the contradictions in the governance of health workers and their migrations. So this labor is only kind of valued in this crisis situation, but oftentimes ignored in other contexts or in other time time periods. So as you say, it really is laying bare a lot of uncomfortable truths um, that have always been there, perhaps beneath the surface, and uh, which are expressions of long-standing inequalities um, of the immigration regimes surrounding care. So if we take the example of nurses from the Philippines, so this is a case that I've done a lot of research on. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an interesting vantage point to explore the different connections between immigration regimes and care, Um, partly because the Philippines is the largest source country of migrant nurses around the world. So it is hard to talk about nursing in the Philippines without situating it in this global transnational perspective. Right. But what we are, so let's start with looking, taking the Philippines as a case study and looking at the different ways in which immigration and care regimes are connected. And what we see today is in part the enduring effects of the country's colonial history. So. Uh, the scholar Catherine Choi, for example, in her work, um, traced the Philippine nurse migration to early 20th century American colonialism in the Philippines when nursing schools were set up. But this was always, of course, bound up with the uh, racial politics of empire. So Filipino bodies were racialized and always seen as inferior. Mm-hmm. And when Filipino nurses moved to the U.S. under 
American colonial rule, they were never seen as equal. And I think this has continued throughout the long decades um, of Filipino migration uh, in the nursing profession to the United States. So many report, you know, the same kinds of discrimination or racism at work. They do the less desirable tasks mm -hmm. and roles that local nurses don't want to do. Um, also getting paid less, working longer hours. And I think it's not only in the U.S., but, you know, in health systems around the world, like Singapore, uh, Saudi Arabia, the U.K., which depends so much on the labor of nurses um, from lower income countries. And so now we're seeing that hypocrisy of immigration regimes laid bare because these are the lives that are less protected. Right. But they're, as you said, starting to be more valued as a profession. Yeah. But then I think there's also other things going on that are worth talking about in that, in that sphere. So, you know, immigrations regimes, immigration regimes affect where nurses can go at different points in time. So now you're seeing, for example, Germany and the U.S. suddenly expediting the visas of nursing professionals who are keeping, who, who have been waiting for years to get visas to go to these wow. countries. And uh, in Spain also, I think among Filipino nurses, uh, you know, who've been trained in nursing, it's been very difficult to get their, their qualifications recognized. Mm -hmm. um, but now in the pandemic, they're suddenly a fast tracking to recognize their qualifications. Wow. That's so very it just goes to show what's, you know, what's possible um, yeah. when it's needed. And I think the other side is also tend to look at the sending state. So the Philippine state also in the past decades has had a very uh, active, very vigorous labor export policy that has actually promoted its nurses going abroad. And right. now they are saying, well, we want you to stay during this pandemic. So they even put in a ban for, for a little while on health workers going abroad. So, yeah, it's, it's just kind of striking the way that these nationalist narratives are shifting to suit the conditions. Absolutely, yeah. Very interesting to... Thank you for setting the scene. I think that's fascinating to see sort of the global movement of, of uh Yeah, of and, and we should also not forget... Um, yeah, so we should also not forget, you know, we're talking about caring professionals, so mm -hmm. senior nurses... But there's also the healthcare aides and assistants who are doing lower paid work yeah. um, and domestic carers. So across um, Hong Kong, across Asia, so in Hong Kong and Singapore, it's migrant domestic workers from different Asian countries, primarily the Philippines and Indonesia, who are caring for older people in private households. Mm -hmm. And these domestic workers in this whole conversation are perhaps still the ones who are least protected and visible. Absolutely, yeah, and so much of that work goes under the table, right? In terms of right. their conditions and mm -hmm. exactly. Wow, it's not a very cheerful picture uh, to draw, but a very important one to to look at. And I, I'm really, really interested in what you were mentioning in terms of the colonial empires' mm -hmm. heritage and and the contemporary colonialism going on in this in this global dynamics. I think is is dreadful and it's fascinating to to hear about mm -hmm. um, how you've you've talked about the philippines already so i think that's a really nice case, case study to to keep in mind and feel free to to draw back to it later on or, or to think about uh another one and, and bring it up as well 
Um, but what do you think that it's possible that the work of, of nurses, of carers, of different sort of like healthcare assistants will be better valued as a result of this situation? Do you think that's that's a possible scenario? Uh, I would hope so. Um, I think it's very obvious right now that care is at the center of our world. So being cared for or being able to care for others is what makes all other life possible. Yeah. And if this crisis has not made it clear, then I don't really know what will. So I see this as a key opportunity to change how we value this work. So on the one hand, there is you know, greater visibility of the work that caring professionals are doing. There seems to be a public recognition on the one hand, yeah. but it also feels that this recognition is superficial or perhaps disingenuous. So mm-hmm. you know, people around the world are clapping for healthcare yeah. workers. But what is the point of, of clapping if you still then can expect them to work under these dangerous conditions? So more than clapping, they need protection at work, they need higher wages, they need secure, dignified and, and equal conditions of work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that most don't actually want to be put on a pedestal or glorified as heroes because they're saying, well, we're doing our jobs, just give us the conditions to do them safely. And so then I kind of circle back to the Philippines and it also reminds me of of the Philippine state narrative, Mm -hmm. uh, which often calls its migrant workers as heroes. Right. But many people have then sort of looked at how this just kind of legitimates Um, the ways in which migrants are sacrificing a lot, experiencing a lot of hardships through working exploitative conditions just to keep the economy going with their remittances. So that hero narrative serves some state purposes. Mm -hmm. And it's a very dangerous one as well. Yeah. Sort of justify that uh, really precarious condition. And I think going, just to draw on another example in the UK, um, you know, which has made a big, big, um, statement of let's clap for the carers every Thursday mm-hmm. and at the same time there was they were even thinking of um, not removing this fee that foreign-born nurses would have to pay to the NHS so the very people who are working to keep the NHS going would pay a fee to use the health services and it's only under significant political pressure now that they they waive this fee and yeah, many are, are seen as unskilled, not desirable in the hostile environment, mm-hmm. except for now, when, they, when they're needed to go to the front line. Mm. Wow. Is there any cases of nurses abroad who have returned to the Philippines? Um, because you mentioned a ban on not leaving, but have you heard of anything? Yeah, I think it's, it's complicated. So I think there are some who might have gone back temporarily between contracts and then have not been able to go abroad. But I think that whole, um, it's quite difficult because on the one hand, you could say, yes, you know, perhaps it's fair the Philippines says don't go abroad or come back and serve the country. So we have these skills. Uh, Why should they go abroad? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, in most circumstances, working as a nurse in the Philippines often means having to volunteer in a hospital to get work experience so they don't even get paid. Wow. So I think for many people to return, it's or, or that question of return, maybe for family reasons, but unlikely for professional reasons, unless the conditions of work really change for nurses in the Philippines. 
and then there would perhaps be other other conversations to be had about um, where do I want to be doing this work. Mm-hmm. Well, um, let's dig in deeper. Considering that uh, nursing is overwhelmingly a, a female-dominated profession, at least in my in my view and in my experience. And please correct me if that's not if that's not correct. Could you give us an insight of of the gender dimensions of this crisis? Right. So nursing and care work are, as you say, they are heavily gendered lines of work. They always have been. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because care has long been seen somehow as an extension of, you know, women's natural roles. So it's yeah. what they do anyway, done in private households or nursing homes. Um, and as a result, it's always been less visible kind of work, mm-hmm. uh, taking place behind closed doors, poorly paid Uh, Very often it's, you know, cheap labor that it's done by migrant women, Mm -hmm. um, especially in these non-institutionalized spaces. So in domestic care, um, often in many countries, it's not their work is not even covered by labor laws. Mm -hmm. So that's why we are seeing that women of color and immigrant women in precarious positions are being disproportionately impacted. On the other hand, it's it's worth noting that the care sector does, in fact, hold more gender diversity. So it's not just young women taking up nursing these days. Mm -hmm. Because of its historically gendered associations as a feminine sector, I think that structurally the work in the sector has always been regarded quite simply as it has not always been regarded as work. Right. Often it goes by us. Not recognize labor. Um, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So care, but not care work. Yeah. And that unfortunately happens across across borders, not just in the Philippines or in the US or in the UK. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's an experience around the world. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks. Thank you for for answering that. I'm also wondering now. Uh, I think your research lines have shifted shifted in the in the past years towards sort of like an aging um, yeah focus of research, and I was just wondering, uh, looking at demography, how do aging populations react and confront such a pandemic um, that we're seeing now? What what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so we're we're hearing a lot um, about the impacts of this pandemic on older generations. Mm-hmm. Also, because many of those who have lost their lives have been in the older age groups. Yeah. But it is interesting or important to look look a little closer at how people are confronting this. So if you think that everyone over the age of 60 in some countries or 70 in others are now labeled a part of the risk group. Yeah. For some people, this might be the first time that they think of themselves as old or elderly. Right which tells us in a way that chronological age does not always match, you know, how old people subjectively feel. Definitely. And then there are, you know, policy measures on the one hand to isolate and protect older people, telling them to stay home. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, I see more attention to questions of older age, a greater concern. But on the other side, I also see that there is a lot of reinforcement of negative representations or stereotypes of aging in our societies. So, 
in a lot of these discussions, we're hearing the aging body being seen as somehow passive, unproductive, or undervalued. Yeah. Especially when you think of aging in conjunction with race or class or gender. Yeah. And some discourses which are somehow saying that perhaps their lives are expendable for the yeah. sake of the economy. Which is hugely problematic and so yeah. And so there's a lot of I remember reading, you know, something that said inequality is one of the biggest underlying risk conditions. So we have to understand how people are made vulnerable. Yeah. And to recognize there's a lot of diversity in this group um, of older people. Yeah. And then I think the other thing that has been very striking um, in this current pandemic has been the widespread neglect of care homes. Yes. Which, um, you know, it's been devastating in terms of the number of care home deaths in countries like the UK, the US or Sweden. Yeah. With, you know, sometimes the deaths were not even being counted. Right. But again, I think we do have to think that the reactions have been different around the world. So if we come back to Asia, mm-hmm. um, perhaps it has been different with regard to care homes. And I think, well, some people might say, I hear some of these voices saying, well, does Asia even have care homes? Well, absolutely. Right. There are plenty of <laughs> institutions and care home in Asia. So, I d- And I don't think it's helpful here to fall into these kind of you know, essentialist stereotypes about aging in Asia versus the West. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we know that aging, yes, aging has different meanings around the world, but we know these meanings are dynamic. Yeah. And they're intricately tied to a global capitalist economy around the world. But perhaps, but perhaps there are differences in terms how, of how care is organized. So the kind of attention that has been given to care institutions and to care workers who move between different caring spaces um, and to the, and the extent to which pandemic infection control has taken these spaces yeah. into account. So Hong Kong, for example, there was strict infection control and there were zero care home deaths in Hong Kong. Right. Very different to some other countries. Yeah, so what groups and institutions are visible and valued from a policy or political perspective? So I think that's an important question. And what kind of commitment there is to older people's care? Mm. And another thing, you know, where we can look at some of the differences is I think that societies that recognize and work with this interdependence between generations Mm -hmm. so which recognize intergenerational relationships are seeing a less acute crisis for older people right so it's not about simply isolating them and then forgetting them but a lot of the you know gerontology associations are saying that you know approaches should not be based simply on chronological age but it should be taking into account um infection control from an intergenerational perspective yeah and looking at the different factors underlying vulnerability yeah and i really liked what you the way that you phrased uh, vulnerability not as someone being vulnerable but the way that someone is made vulnerable and i think that's something that's been completely neglected in the past months um with these big discourses or, or, or people who are essentially vulnerable or intrinsically vulnerable right um, and it really perpetuates the, the, those uh, narratives that you've mentioned. Yeah, but I think how, how we react to and understand 
uh, aging populations tells us a lot about our futures because yeah. this is our collective global future as the world ages. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah. Um, related to what you just said uh, in terms of generations, how can you tell us a bit more about how this pandemic uh, affects and has affected intergenerational relations in terms of care? I come from a country, Spain, where there's quite a heavy discourse or narrative of caring for your elderly or you know just sort of like abandoning them and, and that sort of thing so what what are your thoughts on this yeah i think it's true that in different parts of the world that discussion of intergenerational intergenerational relationships is mm -hmm. different um, in different places um, but like I said, I think it's it's more complex than simply saying, okay, we value the old in this place and not in that place. So, so there's many, many other sort of dimensions to take into account, which relate to economy, institutions, um, global connections, um, ways of living in the contemporary world. But I think that, you know, we, we're seeing in some in some cases that younger people maybe feel more invincible to, to mm. the virus and that's why you know we were seeing initially perhaps that oh it won't affect me but that was an attitude that maybe did not take into account or recognize again that point of us being interdependent everywhere yeah um and then you also hear in some places and i think these were mostly political statements you know that downplay the value of older generations or that see them as burdens to economic yeah. progress so whether you know the general population always shares the views of these political statements it's still we need to do more research into that mm -hmm. but i think at the same time around the world um we're seeing other kinds of intergenerational solidarity so um, neighborhood groups that have been set up on Facebook and social media to support those who've not been allowed to leave their houses, for example. Yeah. Um, Multi-generational households um, yeah. supporting each other across distance and being together in place. Um, and also with carers and people in care homes. Like I, Again, I, I keep mentioning this point, but it's so obvious how interdependent we are. Mm -hmm. And I think trying to deal with this with one group and not another doesn't reflect the realities of that interdependence. Mm -hmm. How, just to, to finish, to finish up really, I'm just wondering how, how do you feel about your book now? And if you were to, to do similar research now, do you think it would be very different in terms of your caring for strangers uh, monograph? Yeah, it's interesting you ask that because since, since this pandemic, you know, during this lockdown period, I've been thinking a lot about the book again and the research. Um, it's, you know, I picked it up again. I've been thinking a lot about the issues that were raised. And maybe I'll just mention for, for the listeners, it was an ethnography that centered on the aspirations of migrant nurses from the Philippines and their experiences of working in Singapore. And I think a lot of the issues that came up in doing that research and writing the book are still, perhaps they are the same issues, just with more visibility at the moment. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything I would do differently, except to really um, 
you know, now this is a global issue that people are paying attention to. So it's a good point to sort of flag up those issues again and again Definitely. at this point in time. Um, so that research was interested in, you know, exploring a number of different points um, with regard to the lives of migrant nurses. So how their work is perceived and valued and how this changes when they cross borders. And most of the time, I found that their work was devalued once they went abroad. So they were often treated as unskilled carers or stereotyped in derogatory ways. This is still something we see in the current moment. Uh, I was interested in the relationships that they develop with the people they care for in these diverse uh, multicultural hospitals and nursing homes. And I think it's important to recognize the enriching dimensions of those paid care relationships, right. but also the, the misunderstandings and the forms of racism that still surface. So these relationships are, again, so important to our future uh, as the world ages and as migrants continue to be the ones doing the vast amount of care work. And the other point that I think is still relevant is on the aspirations of migrants, migrant nurses themselves. So many of them are taking up nursing as a passport to a better future for, for themselves and their families. Um, but these very immigration regimes that we talked about earlier on interfere with their ability to realize these aspirations because maybe their qualifications are not recognized. And I think that's where I see the greatest irony with this pandemic that after years of keeping them waiting or perhaps dampening their aspirations, they're suddenly visible and called upon. Right. But their lives still, unfortunately, the most disposable. And yeah, what else? I think I would also perhaps connect that past research to what I'm doing now on April which is um, to, you know, in knowing more about the experiences of the people who care, I'm often asking the question now, who is caring for the carers? So, and this is a question that's relevant during pandemic, but also relevant at all other times. So I think looking also at the aging experiences of the carers themselves is something that I would like to spend a bit more time looking into. And also understanding the different spaces, as I mentioned before, in which this care takes place. So perhaps also giving more attention to domestic workers who are caring for people behind the closed doors of private households. Do you mean in, inside one family or not necessarily so? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, for example, one family, perhaps a multi-generational yeah. family living together and then hires a domestic worker to do the care work for the older member of the family. Yeah. And in Singapore, for example, that model is very popular because there is a sort of mantra on aging in place. So, you know, that older people would, would stay in their own households, but then they would have a paid care worker coming in to look after them. It varies in different countries in Asia, um, but in Singapore, institutional care homes are yeah. still somehow associated with that picture of abandonment and caring, caring in place or staying in place and having a domestic worker yeah. look after you is more socially acceptable. I think these things will change. They will have to change, but that's how it is. That's how the discourse goes at the moment. 
yeah, a dynamic that is strongly, completely influenced by the demographic trends as well. And as as those change in Asia and elsewhere yeah. in the world, they will definitely um, move on in dynamic ways. I think it's fascinating how your research has gone from uh, mm. really interesting and really relevant um, migration and care and experiences of Filipino uh, workers into this sort of demographic dimension of the issue. I think it's really fascinating uh, research path you're you're taking. Thank you. And it's, I guess it, I would add there, it's also the social cultural dimensions that come with yes. those demographic shifts yes. in our, in our globalized world. Of course. Yeah. And I think the anthropology gaze in that sense is maybe forgotten more often than it should. Exactly. And I here make a, a <laughs> call for anthropological perspectives on care yeah. being really crucial this moment in time but also yeah. far beyond i can only agree meg I'm, a, I'm an anthropologist myself and i can only agree with you thank you so much for joining us uh, and thank you to the listeners for for their attention to the nordic asia podcast and you can listen to upcoming episodes in your favorite podcast app and thank you again mega for joining us today thank you all so much